Blog Talk Radio. There's something outside. What is that? (laughs) 
Yeah, well, we got to do what we can to make sure the inmates running the asylum don't take everything over. Absolutely. Well, Thomas had said uh, to me a while back, hey, let's do a show on John Green. I know we've talked about John Green on a couple different shows, but there's, you know, we haven't really highlighted him completely and totally, and there's some, some things we can talk about with John Green that we haven't touched on yet before. And I know that, you know, it's unbelievable that we're coming up on May 28th will be four years since he's passed. It just doesn't seem possible. Yes, poor poor John passed away on the 28th of May 2016. Uh, it just mm-hmm. seems like But to be honest with you, he was failing for quite some time. We were expecting it, but it was still a shock when it did come. Mhm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, his, uh, I, I imagine so. And now he was what, 89 when he passed? Yes, that is correct. Okay. He was wow. Born in 19... Long, long life. He was, yeah, he was born in 1927. Spent his whole life in the Lower Mainland of British Columbia, living, traveled a bit when after the war to get an education. Uh, he got an education a degree in journalism at the University of New York. I graduated, graduated that, and he married his late wife, June, in uh, 1948. As a young man, he joined the Royal Canadian Navy at about age 17. He had to sort of lie about his age to get in, and by the time he was finished training, the war was nearly over, and he was preparing with the rest of the Pacific Fleet to participate in the invasion of Japan, which, of course, didn't happen. So basically, he his service in the Royal Navy. Uh, it was most of the fighting was over by the time he got there. A young woman named June saw him in that uh, in that uniform, fell in love with him on the spot. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And they were together until he he passed. Uh, uh, no, she passed away uh, about uh, five years before he did. Oh, that's and right. I, I was thinking. Um, when, and when she did, right. it, it, they had five it, children. Poor John Sales. Yeah. Unbelievable. Mhm. And he had well, quite an some things people life. may not know about him. Um, he actually he purchased a newspaper back in about what was it fifty four? Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Idea. yeah. Yep, and that became pretty popular. And then in '63, yes, he was actually elected mayor of the village of Harrison Hot Springs. And when he was a mayor there, he was responsible responsible for the construction of the Harrison Lakefront Beach, where they held the World Championship Sand Sculpture Competition for many years. Indeed. So he that was, was mainly something people may not know the about him. modern front that the town now has, yeah. Very interesting. Um, I know that he was a champion of the Kilby Historic Site um, mm-hmm. there. And then and he it, had something to do with the Fraser Heritage Society. That's correct. Um, and his uh, interest in the Kilby Site is the reason they now have the John Green exhibit in their museum at the, at, in Kilby. Yes. 
I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. you better come after this COVID-19 is all over with because everything's closed now while that's going on. I know. It's ridiculous. We're on lockdown. <laughs> uh, slap happy isn't even a word to describe it at this point. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we he- definitely need and when he ran the Agassiz Advance newspaper, his first Sasquatch story was actually an April Fool's joke about a young girl being taken away by a Sasquatch out of the Harrison Resort. It was all April <laughs> And then a young man showed up with a funny accent in 1955 in his office named Rene de Hinden, explained that he was interested in searching for the Sasquatch in this area, and John Green did everything he could to tell Rene that it was nothing but uh, a First Nation legend, an Indian legend. There was nothing to it, but then he started looking into them. Rene got his interest going. He started looking into things, and that's when he found out about Albert Osman, the uh, Chapman incident in 41, and some of the classic tales, and he began to take the subject seriously himself. Thanks to Renee showing up in his office one day. <laughs> wow! Now he he um, interviewed Albert Osman, didn't he? Yes, he did. Yeah, both he and Renee not. did. Yeah, Albert yeah, Osman. Yeah. Away. Albert Osman lived in Fort Langley. He passed away in 1975. Wow! Uh, wouldn't so, you like to be a fly on the wall of that interview? Oh boy, would I ever! Fascinating story. Matter of fact, John, uh, for years, held on to Albert Osman's original uh, uh, write-up on the incident. And I read it about five times myself. Fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very he wrote much it so. all out in ink. <laughs> uh, gave it to John, and John kept it. And it's still in his archives right now at the Kilby Museum. Wow. What do you think about that story there, Thomas? Uh, you know, you're familiar with it. What What are your thoughts on that? I think it happened. Uh, it's a classic tale. It's one of the classic tales, and unfortunately, it is doomed to be nothing more than that. I believe, because um, always certain things always bothered me about his stories. I looked, and back in the 1980s, I did my sort of own investigation. Uh, you remember in his story, he said an elderly Indian gentleman uh, took him by boat to the head of Toba Inlet and spent a night with him, had dinner with him, and went away And the next morning and was supposed to come back and pick him up in three weeks. Well, I always wondered, what did this old Indian gentleman do when he came back in three weeks and couldn't find him? Did, did he report him missing? And I checked with the archives of the old provincial police because the RCMP wasn't active in B.C. Uh, back in the 1920s. We had our own provincial police force. And I was told, well, if there was any missing person reports back then, they'd be long gone by now. And I was basically told back in the 1920s and before, uh, when you were on the west coast of British Columbia, it was basically every man for himself. Right. And I also... According to his story, when he escaped the, the Sasquatch family, he only wandered for one day and one night, and he was picked up by a logging operation in the Salmon Arm of Shelf Inlet. And I thought, well, is it possible that whatever logging company found him kept a record of it? And I looked at logbooks of uh, 
three different logging operations that were going on in that area, and there's no mention whatsoever in any of those logbooks about a lost prospector being found. Remember, Albert Osman didn't tell the loggers what happened to him. He just said he was a prospector and got lost. And right. uh, there's no mention. But I also found out there was over 40 log, uh, uh, 14 logging operations going on in that area at the time, and hardly any of them even bothered to keep logbooks. So it doesn't right. really mean. Another thing that always bothered me about the story, if you read the original story, Albert Osman said that he and the old gentleman, when he was boated in the Toba Inlet, the old gentleman used the term Sasquatch. And that's not possible, because the term Sasquatch wasn't coined for another eight years in 1929. Now, it's possible... So when he wrote Osmond, down the word, he wrote, actually wrote down Sasquatch. He said the Indian used the term Sasquatch and used the thing. Well, there isn't many of them around, but there's still some out there, things like that. But remember, Albert Osman didn't write any of this down until the late 1950s. So, uh, that, okay. Uh-huh. That Sasquatch is a household word. So whether Osman was just using the, the new name or – but I get the impression he said the old man used the word, and that's not possible. Another thing that was about me right. – the distance between Toba Inlet and Salmon Arm Jarvis Inlet, well, that's almost like three mountain ranges. That's a hell of a distance. So that, that Sasquatch would have picked him up in the sleeping bag, must have carried him a hell of a long way before it dropped him down because Osman said he only wanted for one day and one night before he came up in the Salmon Arm Salmon Inlet. And you look at a map, Toba Inlet to Sheldon Inlet, that's a hell of a distance. <laughs> I don't know how it could be done. Hmm. Yeah, so it was Osman had the wrong inlet in mind. It may have been Jarvis. I don't know, but we'll never know, and that's the problem. Yeah, it is a yeah. fascinating story, though. I mean, oh, it's a it's it, classic. It's one of the classic tales. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Same year, as, same year as the Eighth Canyon incident in Washington. Mhm. Mhm. So did speaking of the Eighth Canyon was. Uh, did John Green get much into that report? Yes, he interviewed Fred Beck when Fred Beck was still alive. Mm-hmm. So did the late Roger Patterson. He also interviewed Fred Beck. I think there's a recording of that one. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Another classic tale. <laughs> uh, and I love those old tales, too. I mean, you got to love them. Oh yes. Right, wrong, or indifferent. They're they're definitely part of the history of the the whole Bigfoot uh, phenomena slash enigma. Mm-hmm. Matter of fact, John but Green. But John uh, Green now he um, I don't know. Some people may not realize, but he actually wrote six different books, didn't he? Beginning in '68. Yeah, '68. He wrote. Uh, on the track of the Sasquatch, then he wrote uh, Year of the Sasquatch, and then he wrote The Sasquatch File, which were uh, uh, self-published uh, booklets uh, under the title of Team Publishing. Hmm. And he updated Do those in that? 19... Yeah, he updated those in 1980 and republished on the track of the Sasquatch book one and two, which was all three books combined. 
And then in 1978, he wrote his masterpiece, which I, I kind of consider one of the Bibles of this research called Sasquatch Ain'ts Among Us, uh, through Hancock House Publishers, the same publisher who does my book. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I have that book. Right. Uh-huh. And then uh, he got together with Chris Murphy and myself, and we all co-authored Meet the Sasquatch. It came out in 2004. Yep, I have that one. Yep, and that's uh, the extent of John Green's publication. Most of the others of republishing of John Green's earlier works. And he did? Did he do one called Encounters with Bigfoot? That's that is on track of the Sasquatch with its American title. Okay, so that one's in that book. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Same wow. book, title with some updates in it. Okay. So, yeah, he was um, a very intelligent person, and, um, you know, another thing that people may not realize is that he spent all of those years investigating into it, taking reports, going to different areas where they had been sighted, going on different type of expeditions, but he had never had an eyewitness encounter himself. Is that correct? Nope, he never, ever, other than footprints, he never caught a glimpse of the creature itself, no. And he spent a lot of time doing this. I mean, a lot of time out there doing this. And so when people, you know, I hear these stories about certain people are like, well, you know, we we have our forest friends out in the forest and, we mind speak with each other and we get together and hold hands and sing kumbaya. I mean, come on. You know, you're talking about a man that was very um, respected and intelligent and put a lot of work into to this whole thing, and he never once saw one. But then you you can take these other people who haven't done any footwork and all of a sudden, they're holding hands with the the forest people. Well, absolutely. Uh, John Green was just he 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 lived his his life of researcher. He kind of uh, inspired the model I've always lived by: stick to the facts, never deviate from the facts. Mhm. Yeah, I first and met you know, the John people and, that that say, "Oh, you know, we're feeding the Bigfoot," and you know, they come and they take the, the jars of peanut butter and this and that, and, of course, they don't have any proof of that. They don't have anything on camera. They don't have anything on game cam. Um, and, you know, they see him all the time. And, you know, if you bring up, well, what can you tell me about John Green? They they don't know who that is most of the time. Or Renee DeHendon. They, they don't know. You know, it's irritating to me because, I think in order to be a serious investigator of this this whole long history of encounters, reports, and stories, I think it does one well to study the the what I call the um, the Squatch Fathers <laughs> to study you know what they contributed before you can, you know, get out there and really understand what's already been laid down before you. 
So to me, people that are out there acting silly and 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 talking about again the force people are mind reading and and mind speaking with me and stuff. It just it, it's an insult for me personally. It's an insult to the men and women who came before us who were very serious and took it very serious. And then we have these people that act like horses asses. And it's it, it, it's it doesn't do well for the whole Sasquatch investigated, you know, investigation and what people um perceive it as. They they do nothing but hurt it. That's my opinion. Well, I agree. I agree. I mean, if you want to, my advice uh, to people who want to get involved in this, just stick the facts, every deep in the facts, and look to men like John Green and what they did and how they did it and Renee, and uh, just base yourself on those models. Don't assume anything, and for God's sakes, never, ever hoax. There's always one golden rule. In Sasquatch Street shirts, thou shalt not hoax. And once you do, mm-hmm. you get caught, well, you're done. No right. Take your and there's again. been a few that have yeah. had, um, did some things they shouldn't have, and uh, their reputation was forever tarnished, even if they really did actually have a true encounter after that. Mm-hmm. It was hard to swallow because of the the known hoaxing that they did prior to. That's right. It puts a dark cloud over everything they do. Mm-hmm. Everything. And I guess the hoaxing is, I guess they want attention or they they want to feel important or they get frustrated because, you know, maybe they did see something um, and they want everybody else to believe that they saw something and they're still ridiculed. Because they have no proof, so they try to create quote-unquote proof by doing stupid things like hoaxing, hoaxing tracks, hoaxing video, um, because they get frustrated. So, Well, I, I, if you're talking about a researcher point of view, someone claiming to be a researcher and does this, I have a term for that. I call it, I call it Ivan Mark Syndrome. You may have heard we've talked about this before. Ivan Marks was the first example of this I ever knew. He's the man that was involved in the original Bosberg cripple prints in Washington, and near Bosberg, mm-hmm. Washington, 69. Green was involved. Hinden was involved. Peter Byrne was involved. Titmus was involved. And uh, Ivan Marks syndrome, like he was, he, he was a hell of a nice guy, but he was the biggest yarn spinner and storyteller you'd ever want to meet. And what I mean by Ivan Mark Zimmer is someone who may have found something originally that may have been real was the center of attention for a while. And then when that attention dies down, they realize the attention is more important to them than the subject themselves, so they do what they need to do to remain the center of attention. And it usually works until they get caught. Right, yeah. And I totally hear what you're saying. And and. I... You know, even the best of the best can get wrapped up in that. You just have to stay focused on the facts, like you've said over and over and over. It's easy to get caught up in ego and and different things like that, and 
worried about, you know, maybe some people want to be written about in books or, you know, be invited to the conferences or, you know, all that stuff is just so irrelevant when it comes down to just really people like you and I, we just really want to know the truth and we want to know what these things are. The rest of that stuff is irrelevant. Oh, absolutely. I just I hear so much stuff now. I just dismiss it out of hand because it's obviously they're blowing it out both ends. Mhm. <laughs> I love it. So yeah. Um. So John, I know you spent quite a bit of time with him. And um, what are some of your your favorite memories about John Green in relation to? You know, being out there investigating or getting together to do any type of investigations or, you know, when you guys were together, it was always centered around Bigfoot probably, right? Yeah, yeah, except we always use the term Sasquatch up here in Canada. We never say Bigfoot. But, uh, yeah, yeah, John John and I went out uh, more more times than I can count. Uh, He was probably my best friend, and uh, he was my mentor in a lot of ways, same uh, same as Renee, and yet I could never get those two together because after what happened down in Bluff Creek in 67, which you and I discussed, I think, in our first show, <laughs> John, John and Renee never really spoke to, uh, too much to each other after that. <laughs> so it's like John said, I wasn't going near him after that. <laughs> yeah, you mean the, the little event about when the Hendon kind of pulled the gun on John? Are you talking about that one? Yeah, he well they they were all there looking at the Blue Creek or the Blue Creek Mountain tracks in the late August, early September, uh, about a, a number of months before Patterson went down there and got his famous film, and all these footprints were found, and for some reason Green and the and Moffat and the other people got in a vehicle and drove off somewhere, and it was blistering hot out, and they left Rene behind, and Rene was stuck out there for I don't know how many hours, eight or nine, before they came back, and Rene stuck stuck the shotgun in John Green's face and said, you ever leave me out here like that again, I'll blow your damn head off. <laughs> wow. Rene well, never I'm sure they weren't that. best friends after that. <laughs> and Green, no. Green was still in of things and stuff like that and they communicated every now and then but they never did anything together in the field after that. Yeah, I, I don't know how Robert so. Morgan I think ever, John made a pretty good uh, Yeah, I don't know how decision. Robert Morgan when he did his big documentary ever got him to sit at the same picnic table but he did. <laughs> I was never able to do yeah. that. Yeah. And every time I got together with Renee one of his top guys was, now what does Green think about this or that? You know, and I go, I'm not telling you, Renee. I won't tell him what you say either. That is funny. And so Green John was, just, was uh, what kind of sense of humor did John Green have? A bigger pardon? What kind of sense of humor did John Green have? Yeah, he, he had a right. He did, he did not appreciate off-color jokes or anything like that, but he had a good sense of humor. He 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 really didn't like off-colored humor or anything like that, which is surprising considering he was a Navy man. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I rem- 
remember one time uh, during the Anderson River investigation, I was sitting there with Gabe Kaplan and, and Daniel Perez and John Green, and Danny, Daniel was, of course, visiting from uh, California, and, and we were all way up there sitting around a campfire after searching for tracks along the river, and I sort of looked at John, winked, said, let's pull one over on Daniel. I said, hey, John, isn't this where Big Red killed all those people? And John Green looked at me, I winked at him, and he, said, he smiled and said, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I said, well, how many men has Big Red killed, John? He said, I don't know, 20 at least. And, of course, Daniel had to take the bait. He said, who's Big Red? Only John would look at him and say, the meanest, deadliest grizzly bear this side of the West Coast mountains. <laughs> oh, my. I don't know if Daniel fell for it. In the area that you guys were sitting in. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know if Daniel fell for it, but the next day Daniel and I ended up camping out there overnight, and the next day we saw a black bear, and I was going to take a picture of it, and Daniel yelled, It's a bear! And, of course, the bear took right off. <laughs> I just got a picture of a black butt disappearing from the tree. I said, Daniel, if we ever see a Sasquatch, don't yell out. <laughs> right. That's cute. Good. Yeah. I love Daniel. He's a good guy. I, I've had him on Monster Trek Radio yeah. before. And, uh, yeah, another yeah, good researcher in California. Yeah. Yes, sir. He's got a lot of stories to tell himself. Mm-hmm. So with the, um, the very first conference, if you will, that he was at, John Green was at, you were also at that, weren't you? Uh, no, the 78 conference in the University of British Columbia, no, I was not present at that one. Uh, the okay. first one I attended was the 89 one in Pullman, Washington, sponsored by the ISC. Okay, and he was there for that, yeah. right? Uh, that's when I first met Daniel Perez at that conference. But Green was down okay. there, Tip was down there, DeHinden was down there. Freeman was down there, and that led to some wild scenes, I'll tell you that, right? <laughs> yeah, we were all down there. But the 78 one in B.C., no, I was in Ontario at the time going going through basic training for the Army, so I couldn't go. So. Yeah, that one was, um, let's see. Uh, let me see here. There's something about a university anthropology of the unknown. Yes. Sasquatch and similar phenomena conference. That was the first big conference we ever had on the subject of the Sasquatch. In Canada, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah that's pretty cool. In 78. And there really wasn't another one until the ISC conference in Fulman in 1989. Now we seem to have them almost every second year. Hmm. Well, there's a lot of uh, Bigfoot conferences out there. Um, I've been to a few. I don't go to a lot of them, though, because I just... And I'm sure there's some good ones. I'm not trying to bash anybody that does them. You know, more power to them. I think it's important to educate the public about what's going on. But I, I just, from what I saw personally, one of the last ones I attended, it was more like a, 
<sighs> Who has the biggest ego here? Raise your hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of them are like that. They get to be to that point, yeah. or they separate into camps. Like you have your Dehinden group on that side, John Green's group on that side, <laughs> Peter Burns' group over in the corner. <laughs> It was like it was like trying to uh, negotiate peace on the Russian-German border just before Operation Barbarossa at 41. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think conferences are important. I just anymore it seems like they'll have just anybody on there to fill a slot and. Ugh. Well, I, I remember in the early conferences they used to we we get the paranormal people there too. And when they ran them up here for a while, uh, they always tried to separate them. The first night was usually the paranormal people in a different location having their talks. And that's when Beckshire and all them would show up and pull their antics and stuff. And then they'd have the uh, zoological conference for the rest of it after that. But now, nowadays, most of the days, they're just all mixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I just the last one I did was down in uh, Washington, uh, Lacey, Washington, because uh, our traveling exhibit was at the Lacey Museum that year, and we gave a, a series of talks, and the uh, at the uh, city hall, and it went very well. But uh, some of the speakers uh, there were, uh, well, they're all good speakers and stuff, but some of them were believe in some pretty wild and theories that I don't give any credence to, but it was definitely interesting to listen to them. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. Well, yeah, and, you know, I, I can honestly say I've had some very weird experiences in the woods myself, um, especially over here in the Uwari. <laughs> There's a long history of high strangeness over here at the Uwari, and, um, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say it was Sasquatch-related, but I think some people kind of blur the lines between, you know, events that happen because perhaps they are out there looking for Sasquatch and then something else happens and they kind of lump it into, well, that had to have been something related to me looking for the Bigfoot you know, I mean, there's stories over in the Uari of basketball-sized orbs floating over fields, and I know several people who have witnessed it that I totally trust and believe, um, you know, and they swear to God they saw them, but are they saying it was related to Sasquatch? No. No, they they can't say that, but I that I think is how some of this gets confused. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Me, myself, weird sh- stuff happens. I've heard a lot of strange things. We don't know. Maybe Sasquatch was involved. But the point is, I won't say so because I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, right. Fact, the one right, exactly. Minute, and I won't say and I'm telling you, if, if a portal ever opens up, in the middle of the Uari, and a Bigfoot walks out of it, I'll be the first one to tell you, okay? Yeah, I will here. be the I first mean, one to stand up and say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. 
there's something more to this than physical flesh and blood creatures. But until that happens, I'm going to stay grounded with, you know. Yeah. yeah I'm just trying to answer one mystery with another mystery. That's right. I don't see any uh, any reason to try to explain a mystery by invoking another one because you're just going around in endless circles. Mm-hmm. But it's never right. too late and, to like you remember a show we did a little while ago. This time last year, I saw Red Eye Glow for the first time, and right. I always, 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 I've seen Eye Glow so many times I've lost count, and they were never bright red. And then all of a sudden, it happened, and I thought, "What the hell was that?" I mean, I thought I thought I was looking at reflectors on an old signpost or something, until they turned away. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I remember that. Oh, that <laughs> I, mean, I remember that quite well. Yeah, so I was wrong. <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely some right. things out there right. that shine red eye glow, and um, there's people that swear by God that they saw Sasquatch that had the red eyes shining, and they didn't even have a flashlight shining on the face of it or anything. It just shined red. So, Well, well, red, red eyes I, I don't know. Is eye reflection, even starlight or moonlight, will cause the eyes to reflect. Mm-hmm. I've had so many cases, like, I was looking out my back porch, and I could see his eyes glowing on the edge of the property. I said, did you have the porch light on? He, he goes, uh, no. I said, were any of the windows facing out had the lights on? And he goes, yes. Well, that's what was reflecting in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't take much You're light, right? really, yeah. to, to reflect I've never seen an owl. Owl, 15 feet up in a branch, looking at me with bright yellow eyes, and the only reason I could see them was it was a full it was a full moon, and that's what was reflecting in its eyes. Right, and I don't believe that. Um, you know, what doesn't make sense to me is if a, a a creature had eyes that shined from the inside out, that would. Um, be a, a a biological problem because would they wouldn't they not be able to see very well if they had light shining from the inside out? <laughs> I mean, how how does that work? I, uh, far as I know, no species of wildlife uh, in the uh, on this planet now that we know of have self-illuminating eyes. The only thing I've heard mm-hmm. that have self-illuminating eyes is some deep deep sea fish. And uh, uh, other than that, no, it just does not occur. If the Sasquatch does, it's the only thing that does. Right. Yeah. And if it does, then there's a whole different uh, biological system there that we are not familiar with whatsoever. Um, and, again, you know, some people say, well, anything's possible. Well, perhaps um, anything's possible, but is it probable? Based on what we know as to be science, current mm. scientific fact. Yeah, and as far as uh, official zoology is concerned, no, there's no wildlife species on this planet that have self-illuminating eyes. Right. So well, let's think- get back to John Green a little bit here. Now, what? Um, when do you recall the last time that you and John 
were able to get out in the field. Do you remember about what year that was? About uh, about uh, three months before he passed away, we took him and myself and Bill Miller took him out on, on the carrier, but he, he wasn't moving around all that well at that point. We took him out as often as we could because he enjoyed it so much. I have some of that on video. Wow. I've, I've never posted any of it because, quite frankly, our, our language is kind of bad. <laughs> but the banter between him, myself, and Bill Miller is hilarious to listen to. I may try to put some of that on my website soon if I can find a bit where <laughs> Bill isn't hurtling insults at me or John or something. <laughs> That's epic. But that we were just having cool. a lot of fun. The banter, the banter between us was always fascinating to listen. <laughs> fascinating to listen. To. <laughs> Well, that's good that he was able to to get out just three months before he passed oh, yeah. away. I mean, that's really good to to hear that. He tried. I mean, I remember John. He used to just plow through the bush. He he was six foot four. Eh? He was a big, tall man, lean and lanky. And I remember going on a hike with him up Bear Mountain once, and I was so impressed. This man in his seventies could just keep going like that nonstop, but he wouldn't duck. Or anything, and I, I must have counted his hat getting knocked off his head five times. <laughs> <laughs> he just keep right on going, and later on he tried and tried, but his body was failing him, eh? and uh, the poor guy fell down about three times. And I had to pick him up, and uh, it was so sad. But he still, mm-hmm. his mind was still sharp as ever. But near the end, his mind would be sharp one minute, and then he couldn't remember a thing the next. It was, I mean. Old age is a terrible thing. I'm not looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The yeah. school joke. Yeah. 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 I mean, we yeah, were there. Me with, his last appearance on camera being interviewed was a, a program called Sasquatch Odyssey, which you can see on YouTube and stuff now. Mm-hmm. I was I was there with the, with uh, the cameraman behind the camera when we interviewed him. That was the last time he ever appeared, and that was just about a year before he died. Wow. And that, is that on YouTube? Yes, I do believe the program is on YouTube. It's called mm-hmm. Sasquatch Odd. Okay. Or on one. Yeah, our listeners want to check that out on YouTube. I, I got my titles mixed up here. It's called Unwanted Sasquatch. Wow, yeah. Mm. That's a good film, My too. favorite memory of John? Well, i got so many of them. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to say. Uh, going out and looking at uh, a lady who was out picking rocks for their garden. When the, the thing crossed the road in front of her, her husband never saw it. He was looking at her. She just she just remembers looking at her and her pointing, and he just got a glimpse of something disappearing in the trees. She said, she said this big hairy thing just crossed the road in front of us. John and I went out to investigate it, and we found an area where it looked like this. Well, she thought it was a nest, and we said, yes, it is, but it's done by mountain beaver, not a Sasquatch. So Ooh. this nest has got nothing to do with what you saw. Yeah, and... Um, which is an interesting thing because John's logical mind, he's always looking for other explanations, just like I always did, influenced by him. And uh, 
Yeah, going out with John was a great thing to do. I, I did it more times than I could count, and I learned a lot from him. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Learned a lot from him. I know he was highly involved with the um, the Patty film, at least the things that happened after that. He was at the scene. Um, was he there looking at the footprints? What, the Patterson Gibbon film? Yeah. Uh, well, he didn't go to the film site. Neither did Renee. They went to Aldi Atlee's house to watch the film. I don't think Green actually got down to the film site until almost a year later when he was filming with Jim McLaren on the spot. Okay. So knowing that bit of information, maybe you can clarify something. Why is it that there's this, theory out there that there was a, um, a massacre at the film site and John Green was involved in it. Well, that all started How when that all David Blatt sent some emails to John Green uh, stating that the story is going around. He wanted John to take a lie detector test and stuff, and John was, of course, taken aback by the whole thing. And it turned out M.K. Davis was pushing this, basing his theory on a uh, lecture film copy that was sent to him by Chris Murphy that had uh, video clips from other films edited onto it. And M.K. Davis thought he was looking at previously unpublished footage of the Patterson-Gimlin film, which is absolute nonsense. Okay, it was a lecture. So film. John wasn't even in the area that, of the the Patty film for a year le, until a year later. It was a lecture film with several different films spliced together. Of course, the Paris and Gibbon film was part of it, and uh, because they didn't have video in those days, and 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 all they had was slides, and and they had to show when they showed a movie, they had literally had to set up a projector and a screen, right? So right. that's what that film right. And and M. K. Davis for some reason thought he was looking at unpublished footage from the Patterson Gibbon film, which is absolute nonsense. And he came across this wild theory. He started this wild theory that, that Green and DeHinden and Gimlin and Patterson had massacred a whole family of Sasquatch down there and buried the bodies and spent the next forty years saying uh we need a body or a piece of the body, right? Of course, it was nonsense, and Bill Miller and I put together a paper exposing this whole thing. Uh, uh, you can see that on my that, those papers on my blog site under the title "Here We Go Again." Uh, go, back, go back to January 2019 if you want to read it, and uh, basically exposing everything he said because we had a much clearer version, much clearer footage of all the footage that M.K. Davis. Uh, was talking about and everything he said. And M.K. Davis, this is where I lost faith in M.K. Davis because he was taking stills from that film and mucking with with the the contrast to make, well, he said it was Bob Tibbs, who was actually the pilot of the plane that took him down there, Keith Gazzara, making his hands look red. And then he, he tried to make the water in the river look red. Mm-hmm. And as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. that's hoaxing. If, you're t- if you are altering yeah. images to give a false narrative, that's hoaxing. 
And from that point on, to me, N.K. Davis just became another hoaxer. Yeah, and I'm not sure. Oh, my God. It gives me a headache, honestly, to think how anybody could think that that John Green, Renee DeHandon, Bob Gamlin, and company would, number one, even massacre Sasquatch if they found a, a family of Sasquatch. What the hell would they massacre them for? Well, in that, John Green has always been and always was to the day he died. We have to shoot one to prove it to the, to, to the rest of the world that the creature actually exists. And he went along with Grover Kratz's uh, thing. He said, if they're so low a number that killing one will terminate the species, they're doomed anyway, so we might as well prove that they're there. So why, why shoot one or kill one or whatever and then bury it? Why not bring well, it over it, to the university? That's just it. It didn't happen. It was just a wild conspiracy theory started mm-hmm. up by M. Davis and and David Pilates and the late Bobby Short ran with it. Matter of fact, my friendship with Bobby Short sort of ended over this because she was swearing up and down that the man in the footage, the Blue Creek Mountain footage, you see carrying the shotgun, uh, the same shotgun that Renee stuck at John Green's face, I might add, was uh, Bob Timmis. I said, no, it's not. It's Keith Kazara. And we published a photo of Keith Kazara. We published a photo of him with the plane that they flew him down there. And we published his flight log book, which proved that he took them down there. I said, it's Keith Kazara, wow. still alive, and he lives in Medicine Hat, Alberta. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you, that, and, and the thing about that is it, it just keeps popping up. It goes quiet for a little bit, and then something or somebody takes that and runs with it yet again, and it's then they put it on YouTube and different things, and, and then people – who don't know anything about, again, here we go, they don't know anything about the history of the people involved. Just believe whatever they see. Honey, anybody listening that doesn't know any better, everything you see on the Internet is not true. Yeah, there's a man now here in B.C. who uh, puts up YouTube videos. He goes under the title, How to Hunt. I don't know his real name, and I'm not really interested in finding out because I'm really not interested in giving this guy any publicity, but he just put out a, another uh, uh, tape or YouTube uh, video basically bringing up this massacre nonsense again, called John Green, the late John Green, some nasty names, which uh, I'll never forget. Uh, basically accused him and others and probably myself of being – Government conspiracy liars, you know, and I, uh, I just, all I did was publish a link to those two papers explaining the whole massacre nonsense. He said, if you're really interested in the truth, here it is. If you're not, well, the hell with you. Wow. So because you published those, now you're a government conspiracist against the killing oh, wow. of the Bigfoot. <laughs> wow. Everything's a big government cover-up, you know. They, yeah, am I in the Twilight they, Zone or what? That's yeah, I mean, it's just wacky nonsense that it would, would go in a never-ending circle, which is what I think they want in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, they want the hit. They want the attention. They want people to 
you know, think that they know something about the big hidden secrets, and the secret is there is no secret. Yeah, and they just goes in an endless circle, so you get their little uh, followers and subscribers, and uh, the ego goes from there. Exactly. But this whole massacre in Buff Creek, we we blew that out of the water when it first came out. And if people want to know the truth, they find out the truth. They don't. They just want to go on with the conspiracy bandwagon. Well, then, then they just won't listen because they're not interested in the truth. They're just interested in their own self-delusions and pushing in an agenda. Right. Right. Yeah, and that... that that does pop up. I I saw it pop up again at the end of last year, and there were some new people on that bandwagon that jumped on that. And, uh, I'll tell you. No, if anyone wants to know the truth about the massacre and Bluff Creek theory, go to my blog site. Go back to January 2019. Look for the title, Here We Go Again, and Here We Go Again Part 2, and you can read the whole thing. That's really good you guys did that. So, yeah, I mean, just um, we need more John Greens in the world is what we need, Thomas. I agree. We need need more researchers that have a straight zoological, stick to the facts, never deviate from the facts approach. Get the Sasquatch back out of the tabloidism and back into, is there a mystery, does it exist, or does it not? Right. There's just, it's just carried on almost, so much, and it's so many... Like, it's almost like the Sasquatch does exist or doesn't exist, it's just too boring for them anymore. Now, not only does it exist, it's got to be some weird thing from the fourth dimension that comes through portals that shares the world with shapeshifters and dogmen and <laughs> aliens and <laughs> the Lugaru right. and yeah, the Windigo. Right, I mean, and, and then there's the, the, the cult, I call them a cult, yeah. um, of people who um, think um, that, yeah. that they are actually, um, they came from another planet and they can shapeshift into trees. And that's why you don't see them in the forest. <laughs> because they drift into trees. Oh, my God. But, you know, we've always, had, we've always had the tabloidism. It's just now the tabloidism seems to be in the majority because actual research into the actual mystery is just too boring for so many people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to... I mean, you're not going to jump out there and pitch your tents and night one in the middle of the night, Bigfoot probably not going to come up and grab your head through the tent, okay? And say, oh, here I am. I mean, it just 99.99% of the time it doesn't work like that. Yeah. I mean, in all the years I've looked, I may have had a fleeting glimpse once, and I still won't say it was a Sasquatch because it was just too darn far away to identify Mhm. Right, and I mean, I I saw I saw something rather unusual and very large pass by in the woods 
about, oh, I don't know, maybe 50 feet away from me, but, it, the, you know, the woods were so thick. It was huge. I can say that. It was huge. Whatever this thing was, was huge. But because I didn't see, I, I can't tell you that that's what it was, but it was, it gave me, definitely gave me goosebumps being standing there when it happened, you know, and I wasn't alone when that happened. There were two other people with me who witnessed it, and we all looked at each other, and it was like, okay, did we all just see what we saw? And, you know, we head over to where it was, and, of course, there's nothing there, so what do you do? You, you can't say that's what it was. Absolutely. Stick to the facts and every DVD. The facts facts are I saw a figure. The facts are it appeared to be walking upright. The facts are it was jet black. But the facts also are it was too far away to see detail. So I can't say for certain with 100% certainty it wasn't a big, odd-looking man way up there. But if he was, right. he was very odd. Uh, well, uh, we're getting close to the hour here. I have a pretty good show here, I think, talking about old John Green, and I know that a lot of has a lot of fans out there still, um, and a lot of people that knew him on a personal level that you know that had a, he had a big impact on many people's lives. I highly recommend Sasquatch Heaps Among Us by John Green. I consider it the Bible of research here, and uh, if you get a choice between. Any of Thomas Steamer's book or John Green's book, pick John Green's book because it's the best. Or you can pick both. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you have to, if you have yeah, to choose both. between one or the other, you can't beat the Ace Among Us by John Green. That was a fantastic book, and it's yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry, he never he never got Agreed. the chance. To, he just never got the chance to update it. Well, Thomas, we have. Uh, and two more episodes. We're going to have the 20th episode, and Thomas and I are going to have something uh, as a celebratory for our 20th episode. Uh, we're going to think up something really cool that we haven't discussed before, and maybe you know bring forward some never-be-told stories, information, and so forth about this whole crazy world of Bigfoot. So you definitely want to tune in the next couple shows, guys. Looking forward to Thomas? it. We'll oh, go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> I no, just, uh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And, uh, can't believe it's been 20 episodes, though. Where oh, we're on the time gone? now. 18. We still got 19 to go before we get to 20. But <laughs> right. But I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's been that long already. Great shows, though. I can tell you that. Good shows. So, <clears throat> all right, Thomas. Well, it's been fun. Another good one for the books. Roger that, so my dear. We'll get together again next month. Looking forward to it. All right, Thomas, thank you so much. You're very welcome, And all, all of our listeners, we appreciate you tuning in, and we appreciate your feedback or, you know, if you have questions, comments, concerns, 
you can always reach out to us. Thomas, what's your email address if people would like to get a hold of you? My email address is sasquatch at telus.net. And that's T-E-L-U-S dot net? Yeah. And my okay. blog site thomassteenberg.com, www.thomassteenberg.com. All right, cool. And if anybody would like to reach out to me about any of the topics that you'd like to hear us discuss, um, we'd love to hear that as well. Um, Julie.wrench, that's R-E-N-C-H, at yahoo.com. We definitely appreciate any input, suggestions. So... Until we meet again, it's been fun as always. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.